Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 13th of February 2012. For newcomers, make use of CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website. There's hundreds and hundreds of audios for free download and hopefully uh, those that can will understand the big system that runs the world, vastly different from the one that uh, you're taught at school, uh, that you grew up with from the regular media, even your movies too, it's all a big part of it. Especially, in fact, most of your programming comes from fiction to prepare you for tomorrow. Not your tomorrow, but uh, the pr- tomorrow has been made for you already. So if you understand the big system, the foundations, the history of this organization with their world plan, you'll understand pretty well everything. And things in the media will start to suddenly make real sense to you, not the, the exoteric sense that it's meant to have for most people. And uh, what you can do, too, to help me keep going is to buy the books and discs at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. And from the U.S. to Canada, you can use a personal check. You can use a, an international postal money order from the post office. You can use PayPal. Some people send cash. And across the world, you've got Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal once again. Remember, straight donations are awfully welcome indeed. But this world, as I say, what we do here, as I do here, uh, Hamish doesn't do much except barking on them when strangers come up the door. But um, what I do really is, is chronicle the events and go back into the past to show you that this was planned a long time ago when events actually correspond to plans that they had 100 years ago, some of them in the big socialist systems. And the socialist systems were never ever really the enemy of the right wing. It's just one bird with two wings, and the bird knows where it's going. Uh, and the wings are two different ways of doing the same thing, really. Uh, the Fabian socialists try to do it the slow way, gradual, so that you just accept and accept. We munch at a time, like you're, you're munching at a bar of chocolate or something. And the, the right wing simply does it uh, through um, wars, generally, just wars, and then they get the United Nations, which they own, to uh, fix up the laws in hindsight, you know, post-facto, basically. And, and that's how they do things. So they both work together for the same objectives, and one puts its reliance on encouraging the people, persuading the people to just go along with things a bit at a time, the Fabian way, as you call it. And that's why you have the Fabian Society, which was started up by the Astor family, and they used H.G. Wells and a whole bunch of authors and different people to be members as well. And the authors all wrote books that would intrigue you to get these ideas across, to get you ready for change. And it's amazing how someone else's idea makes people take off as though it was their own idea. It really is. Just look at fashion. And uh, nobody wants to be different from the fashion, especially when you're young. Peer pressure. And it's quite amazing, at that age, you're trying to get individuality, and yet you're copying everyone else. You're understood perfectly in every generation. They know exactly what a 30-year-old male is thinking about, uh, and a 30-year-old female. And it's the same thing when they're 50 and 60. Every age group is catered to uh, through all the different medias that are available. 
and they have target audiences. No different from the general media too. You get your big newspapers for the ones involved in finance, etc., and, and political correctness. They adapt very quickly. And you've got your little square rags, which uh, are, are for the little people at the bottom, generally with pictures in it with, with big-boobed uh, babes, etc. And, and that's where you get your news at the bottom. And then, of course, you have special magazines for those who actually work in Washington, D.C., or Ottawa, or London, the bureaucratic types. So everybody's catered to, and that's what Carl Quigley said in his own book, The Tragedy and Hope. Every sector is catered to, to make sure they all go along with their particular programming without incident. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix. And years ago I mentioned on the air when Holland was the first country in Europe to to basically uh, start going ahead with euthanasia for people who they claim were terminally ill. And I said at the time, I said this won't stop uh, there, it won't stop with GPs, general practitioners doing it. And uh, the state wants to, because I've read all the books from many, many years ago, they want the right to decide who will live and die. Uh, George Bernard Shaw of the Fabian Society, and I've put up the video many times before. Uh, he actually, you can actually hear this old uh, clip and see him uh, saying, "When we have power, he says, uh, you'll have to come to us. You know, they stop the ordinary people to justify why we should keep you alive." If you're no use to their big global system of socialism, uh, then they want to simply knock you off. But I said that the whole purpose of euthanasia in Holland was to get everyone acclimatized to it and to uh, basically, and along with dignitas too, ma- that was massive, masses of publicity, which is, which was they want, of course. But that, the ideal thing is for the government, you see, to come in. And when the government comes in to say who's going to live and die, you're in awful trouble, folks. Awful trouble. But it doesn't matter, it's an agenda, and most folk don't really care because we see they're not that old yet. It's not their turn yet. And, of course, you never get old. Young, youngsters think that, too. They think, oh, my, I'll never get old. Oh, it's a different species, old people. And um, it isn't just for old people. It can be for young people, too, in Holland now that they've changed it, uh, where the state brings their little euthanasia van to your door. Up they go, strap you down, and bang, that's you gone. And that's no, I'm no kidding. This, this is actually here, folks, you know. And of course they want to copy what every country does in the, they give every country in the EU a particular program to push, and then the rest of them copy it. Well, they're doing it in Holland. Why don't we do it here? It'll save a lot of tax money keeping that old person alive. And we want their pensions anyway, you know. And after all, the definition of a good citizen, a global citizen, by the United Nations themselves, is a good producer and consumer. So elderly people are consumers only. You see, they're not producing anymore. So that's how they're, they're handling that. Plus, of course, they're teaching the young that, oh, the elderly, you know, they ruined the planet. They, they, they had the best of times. I don't know how they got that from watching um, Leave it to Beaver or something, but it didn't happen in reality. But anyway, that's what they're getting taught at school, so they don't really like the elderly. And um, and so now that the state can come in and just bring the euthanasia van up and pop you off, that's it, gone. And then they take your organs, etc., and make a profit off them as well. Might as well, ain't nobody else is using them. That's, that's their attitude today in the secular state. So 
His article here, which came out, of course, Doctor's Radical Plan to Tackle Organ Shortage. Now, this isn't really happening as far as a, a shortage as such as I keep claiming, because I know people who harvest, they call them harvesters of organs, and... Uh, and they tell me, they all tell me this, that they can't get to all the donors. They can't, this is not enough to get to the donors, in fact. There's a, no shortage whatsoever. There's more teen suicides now than ever before. And, uh, male and female. And it's changing so much too. At one time, the, the females mainly took pills. Uh, but now they'll shoot themselves in the head, just like the guys. Things like that. So anyway, doctors' radical plan to tackle organ shortage. It's for the future, for the future. They're getting us used to doing it now, you see, so we'll all accept it as we go along when they really will need more of these things to keep the, the, the wealthy elites alive, you see, across the whole planet. So I don't know if you've ever seen the movie called, um, it was called Coma, put out in the 70s, I think, and they were doing that there. This was the whole plot of the movie, how horrible it was. Well, here it is. Doctor's radical plan to tackle organ shortage. They keep the patients alive to become donors and hearts retrieve from newborn babies in controversial uh, British Medical Association proposals. And it says patients can be kept alive solely so that they can become organ donors. It's kind of like that movie too, called The Island, I think, was it? And that's a more recent movie as well, where they bred them for that purpose and kept them stupid and happy, but they're actually getting bred for, for body parts. Anyway, it says, um, the hearts could be retrieved. That's predictive programming. You see, that's how these things get familiar to you. From newborn babies for the first time and body parts be taken from high-risk donors as part of an urgent medical and ethical revolution. It's ethical, you see, to ease Britain's chronic shortage of organs. Well, believe you me, uh, the British Medical Association and the National Health Service, it must be out of touch because the National Health Service has slashed things to the bone where there's hardly any treatment left at all. You can't even get cataracts done. That's like a 15-minute job. Things like that. So it's not for the ordinary people, you understand. It says, hearts could also be taken from recently deceased patients and restarted in those needing a cardiac transplant under controversial proposals from the British Medical Association intended to stop up to 1,000 people a year dying because of the country's chronic shortage of organs. <laughs> the new BMA report on ways to increase the supply of organs, which is shown to the Guardian newspaper, has revived intense ethical debate about how far doctors should go to help save the lives of the growing number of patients with organ failure and also to, to fatten their wallets, because there's big bucks in it. The BMA wants a debate about the use of, of and they keep using this word ethically. You better understand what they mean by ethically. You understand? Because they're awfully good at this, this terminology and they're talking about bioethics, which is the new term for eugenics. And, and eugenics who are ethical, you see, is just a, what is the morality of today? Morality to them is plastic, flexible, and they can guide it into any new normal they wish to. And that is true. They can do that. I've watched it in my own lifetime. So this ethically contentious practice called elective ventilation, I guess it's stick holes in you and blow smoke through it, in which patients diagnosed as dead using brain stems, such as those who have suffered a massive stroke, are kept alive purely to enable organ retrieval. So in other words, you'll be just like the patients in, in the coma, the movie, where they sort of hang you there in these kind of hanging bed things, like hammocks. And they've got you all listed what's good in your body, but they keep you, your brain dead, but they keep you uh, breathing and the blood circulating. Well, such patients are usually put on artificial ventilation for a short while to enable their relatives to say goodbye or for organ donation. The report says elective ventilation is different 
in that it involves starting ventilation once it's recognized that the patient is close to death with the specific intention of facilitating organ donation. See, they like it. Uh, that, they actually like, and I know how it's done, because they, they, uh, they keep the patient alive, and they bring it in, actually, in, in a room next to the, 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 the one that they're going to donate to, and right to the last moment, they take the heart out and everything else, and then that's death right there for that person, the, the donor. Once that's, they stop the heart beating, and they cut the, the bronchial tubes and all the rest of it, take the lungs out, and then the rest of the, the ghouls can move in, kidneys and liver and everything else, you see. Anyway, uh, so the procedure led to a 50% jump in the number of organs available when it was carried out by the Royal Devon and Exeter Hospital from 1988, but it was declared unlawful by the Department of Health in 1994. So there you go. They've already trialed it, you see. They found out uh, what resistance they get from the public. And now they overcome the resistance. However, there are fears that elective ventilation could induce a persistent vegetative state and concern it is unethical to give patients treatment to benefit other people rather than them themselves. When they're doctors now, it's just a role for money. And if you're scared to go to your hospital now because uh, are they going to help you to live or are they eyeing you up for how much cash they're going to get personally if they, they operate on you and remove organs? Well, I'm not kidding. That's where it is. It's been that way for quite a while. Anyway, Dr. Kevin Gunning of the Intensive Care Society, which represents staff, but Dr. Vivian Nathanson, the BME's head of ethics, said the practice might be deemed permissible, at least for patients who had signed the organ donor register. And you better check up and see if you're on that, because you don't have to. They're just putting their names down. And, and your relatives will often say, well, I didn't know they did that, you know. And they hadn't. Spain and the U.S. already used the technique, said Nigel Heaton, professor of transplant surgery at King's College Hospital London. People have qualms about it. The concern is that you're prolonging or introducing uh, futile treatment that has no benefit for the patient. But I expect that views will gradually change. Yeah, he darn well knows. And um, uh, around this, in its favor, it's an ongoing tragedy that so many people are still dying in this country for want of an organ. There's even more dying because you can't get into a hospital or, or some countries, like even here in Canada, you, you'd be dead before you get into for examination in the hospitals. Massive waiting lists as they cut, it, cut everything to the bone. One of the reports, uh, other most radical suggestion is that with the permission of the deceased family, surgeons could remove the heart of someone who's just suffered a circulatory death, maintain its function by putting blood noxion into it, and give it to a patient who needs a new heart. So they go on and on and on. And so you know where it's all going, folks. It's uh, this brave new world, you see. And also, from uh, Ethics Illustrated, that's a, the, uh, the, this uh, bioethics and uh, magazine that they have for themselves, and which is eugenicist, you know, that says doctors radical plan to tackle organ shortage. Patients should be kept alive, become donors, and hearts retrieved from newborn babies in controversial BMA proposals. It's just wonderful, isn't it? So that nothing goes to waste now. It's all big bucks, big bucks, under the guise of helping people, mind you. It's like giving blood. You know, most of the blood isn't isn't used for what you think it is. It doesn't go to patients. A lot of it gets tossed out. Yeah. Anyway, it says, Dr. Gosraigo, Planet and Tech Lords, Dennis Campbell, Guardian, it says. So anyway, it's the same kind of thing again. So it's interesting that Guardian is actually seems to be in with this Ethics Illustrated, which is biogenic, uh, biogenetics, basically, and, uh, and eugenics magazine. So that's your wonderful world, and now they've got their, 
their, their death mobiles coming around doors in Holland uh, by the state, not by the doctors. What they said in, in that last week's article that I read on the air was that um, in Holland, um, if the GP refuses to, to terminate you, then the state uh, will come and do it instead. Yeah. So the state now is like, you know, who's going to live, who's going to die, and they're already doing it uh, and, and convincing young females not to have children and just abort them, you know. And Britain too, uh, I think this is one of the first ones. I know they have private police here and there, but you see, Britain was one of the first countries to start up real private security companies using ex-military uh, right from the army. And they have guys who can get sent abroad as private armies too. Now they're taking over the police stations. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back and cutting through the matrix. Yeah, talk about years ago how I talked about, uh, I actually met one of the guys who owned one of these big security firms in the 80s and he said this is the way the future is. Down the road there's going to be massive uh, terrorism, that's what he said, and there'll be lots of security bodyguards for very important people, uh, work all over the place for folks, all ex-military, and that's the way it was going to go in the privatization of police and everything else. Everything must be privatized. And so the big boys knew about it a long time ago because they planned things. Things don't just happen. Nothing in the system just happens. But the G4S, they call them, which is G-forced to win contract for a privatized police station. Security firm will run control room, custody suites and support services and they're to be awarded the first contract in Britain to build and run a police station and the most far-reaching outsourcing initiative in law enforcement to date. Having already been selected as preferred bidder for the deal, the world's largest security firm is expected to finalise an agreement with the Lincolnshire Police Authority within days. The contract will see G-Force handle some services normally undertaken by police officers, including the running of custody suites, the force control room and firearms licensing, uh, although custody sergeants and inspectors will continue to oversee operations. Well, that'll be for a little while. Eventually, I'll be all there. The force is also confirmed that outsourced business support services will include HR, IT, finance, and procurement. It's understood that just over half the constabulary's 900 civilian staff will transfer to G-Force, while the remainder will stay as police employees alongside the 1,100 officers. So it says the G-Force will undertake the security company's seven-week training program, which meets home office guidelines for custody workers. The contract is said to be worth £200 million over 10 years, with an option for a five-year extension. It will see G-Force build a new police station, comprising of a two-story office complex and 30 cells. So here is imprisonment for profit, of course, as everything must be now, as everything's going that way. And the states already has a lot of them like that, in Canada too, I think. Other local police forces are said to be, it's like prisons, like, to, to considering similar partnerships this year in the wake of drastically cut police budgets. Anyway, it's a done deal, and that's just the way things are really done. You know, they're done before you hear about them, and even for the cops themselves, that's just the way it goes. And another article here is about corporate Candyland. It says a looming GM sugarcane invasion. And that's the modified sugar cane that they've got. Now, you know, you find that even when I was at school, uh, primary school, hearing about how sugar cane workers didn't live that long. 
they were lucky to hit 50. Most of them hit about 40 odd and died because there's so much uh, dust comes off the sugar cane. These big tall sugar canes, just, as they cut them with machetes and so on. But it's got worse now. They're all having kidney failure because the GM sugar cane. It says, within a span of only 10 years, nearly the entire Argentine pampas, the huge swaths of forest and farmland in Brazil, Bolivia, Uruguay, Paraguay, have been converted into green deserts of soya monoculture. Latin America's soya boom was and continues to be a bonanza for agribusiness. It provided the handful of global grain giants who dominate the international oilseed trade and commercial feed markets with a cheap and abundant site of production for the expansion and consolidation of their global operation. The same companies such as Cargill, ADM and Bungie, is it Bungie, has also made billions in selling required chemical fertilizers, while other big foreign companies such as AGCO and John Deere have cashed in on sale of tractors. They've opened another place in China to make the John Deere tractors too. Monsanto and Syngenta have raked in record profits selling their genetically modified seeds and chemical pesticides. The soy invasion was based on a model production, and it goes on and on about how it worked and so on. Uh, and eventually it gets to the, to the, to the sugar, etc. And, uh, as I say, what's happening is the guys are coming down with, uh, kidney failure. Sudden too. You know, they might work for a couple of years and bangs, kid, total kidney failure. I, I guess they can harvest maybe the lungs and hearts and things and sell that in the global market, but, but, um, it's quite something to see this happening with uh, the chemicals they're using on the, the especially special chemicals they use like Roundup stuff and so on, uh, which they also use on sugar beet as well. So no wonder they're going to need all these organs in the future. Is you know the big boys themselves don't eat the stuff, the, the rubbish we eat. Of course, they've got special food for themselves, and um, that's just the way it is. We're left with the the poison at the bottom. And this other article is, I'm going to put a file on four, it's called Biosecurity, and it's from the BBC, where they go into something I mentioned uh, a couple of months ago, which was that the big labs, of course, World, World Health Organization and others, had actually uh, created a, a flu virus which will kill most of the people who get it. Just to find out, you see, how many mutations the virus would have to go through itself to reach that stage, uh, they did it in a lab. Just just for a curiosity, you understand. And now it's a bio-warfare weapon. So that's their excuse, but uh, it will be released someday. And <laughs> everybody remembers Agent Orange. Um, they used to use it in, in, in most countries. Just for Landscape farmers used it, for instance. Uh, and or landscape gardeners, I should say, who would go into the big estates and spray this stuff. I've seen it used, and when it's sprayed, it's just this kind of orange effect it has in the in the air. It's, it's really a dark brown when you see it, but it's orange when it's in the air. And it's this hidden Agent Orange chemical which they want to sneak into your food. It says here, Agent Orange, produced by both Monsanto and Dow Chemicals, was used to defoliate the jungles during the Vietnam War. And I'll go on. Actually, they're still used in Canada in the military bases here right through into the 80s. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix and talking about Agent Orange, which has made a comeback with Monsanto and different ones too. Anyway, it says, story of, it says, Dow Agroscience is a subsidiary of Dow Chemicals. And that's the guys that originally made it, it was Dow. And it says, has developed a new generation of genetically modified GM crops, soybeans, corn, and cotton that are engineered to resist an herbicide called 2.4 diclofenoxyacetic acid, 2.4D, which was a major ingredient in Agent Orange. Once the 2.4 resistant uh, D seeds are resistant, uh, are released, it says, it will mean farmers will be spraying massive amounts of the herbicides onto U.S. farmland, and the health effects linked to 2.4D include birth defects, blood, liver, and kidney toxicity. The 2.4D resistant crops are being touted as a solution to Monsanto's Roundup Ready crops, which have triggered the creation of superweeds. Wherever they've been used, they've got these superweeds now, they can't get rid of However, the new crops will likely only add to the problem of herbicide resistance, while even greater amounts of herbicides are sprayed onto U.S. farmland, exposing millions to their harmful effects. And, um, and the main story is just to the left of that. So I'll put that up tonight, too, and you'll see the wonderful things that you're, you're eating. And um, there's a, a bunch of stuff from, from Wired and, and different sites about the F-bomb. It says dropping the F-bomb. And what it is is basically um, they're little detectors that can be used, like little computer robots, basically, drops. They throw it in a person's garden, drop it on the roof, probably drop it from the sky, and they're nanotech computing devices. And it says they're envisioned to possess a variety of physical sensors from wireless mesh networks and generally allow the hero or villain to attain omniscient and clandestine awareness of the actions of other characters. Then goes on, on about how it's built. The guy who built it, Brendan O'Connor, who apparently worked for DARPA and everybody else, which tells me too that these things, which are, you know, they're not tiny, they're, they can fit in your hand, I'm sure. But uh, he's already probably been working on the little tiny ones that you little specks of dust, no doubt. They can spray in vast quantities over a person's home or around a home or whatever. So uh, this is the this is the this is for the the people out there, you know, the mob, to buy, and and also obviously for for police and things too. But I'm sure since he worked with DARPA and and uh, Homeland Security and so on, building uh, this type of stuff, is they've got much more in a miniature setting than just that. So it can basically link in and hack your computer. It can it can uh, hack your wireless system, and all of that kind of stuff too. It can do it locally, and it's quite cheap to make. Apparently, they make them and sell them. And I'm going to put a link tonight too to the Environmental Institutions for the 21st Century, the International Court for the Environment. And I'll put that one up for you as well, and you have a look through. Those who think they didn't do anything at the last big meeting, and they did an awful lot, and they're getting geared up for the Rio Plus 20 meeting in June, I think it is. And this is going to probably get put into law everywhere, where they actually want to eventually tax you and your energy personally and your carbon personally. That's what I've said for years. This is the real, the real goal of it, not for just big corporations and stuff. And as we go through transhumanism, transhumanism is um, something a lot of people dive into, think, oh, how wonderful, they've seen all the sci-fis, especially the comic ones that they watch. And uh, they also use homosexual groups too, transvestites and everything. They're getting used. They are getting used. Every group out there gets used. 
as they think they're getting more freedom, they're actually getting used to destroy whatever is left of what it is to be a male and a female. To be a male and a female, you see, you have to reproduce your own kind. That's the point of being a male and a female. Nature doesn't give a darn how you feel about it. Uh, it's just what, you, what it wants you to do. And um, that's called nature. You, you can't fight nature. It always comes back and hits you with a vengeance. But anyway, uh, so they're using all these groups, and they're being pushed from the top. All of this transhumanism is being pushed from the top. Now, Scotland, like every other country now, has these grafted-on czars of science and different things, uh, you see, even further than some countries, because the Carnegie Foundation, believe it or not, is running most of Scotland. When you look into anything behind government and sections of government, the Carnegie Foundation is running them. I'll put a link up tonight for Carnegie as well. You can see who sponsors them, all the big boys, and not industrial boys. Everybody, everybody's a partner with them and, and funding them. And they work alongside the Rockefeller Foundation. They're running their schools, everything. This article says, Children's Czar uh, backs a calls, calls for boys to be allowed to dress as girls at school. You see? This is from, the, this is from an expert, you understand. And, oh, we don't understand it because we're not experts. So that's the problem. Cross-dressing people, Jamie Love says, a call by Scotland's Youth Czar to allow school, school boys to wear girls' clothes will help people like him. This is... Um, uh, the commissioner, Tam Bailey, claims gender-specific uniforms can cause serious distress. Oh, dear, just terrible. you got a tear in your stocking or something. And it says the children's commissioner is a very important person, and hopefully people who are making decisions on policies will listen to him. Why is he important? Who even grafted him onto government? Same as in the U.S. with Holder and another whole bunch of them there. It says uh, the record revealed how Jimmy claimed he'd been sent home from Govan High School in Glasgow for dressing as a girl. He was later allowed to return. And it says, uh, Ten people have mailed me a Facebook and said they want to dress like girls but are scared to. Billy's comments to Holly, Hollywood's Public Petitions Committee. It's not Hollywood, it's Hollywood. Uh, they're pretty rude there too. Followed the petition from Lucas Garabello, 13, off Cayman near Falkirk, calling for a form of school uniform policy. So, that's how they put it in, just like that, you see. And this is from the guy who's in charge of all, the, you know, the education system for, for Scotland. Scotland is, is gone. It's, it's, it's wacko. It's, it's beyond socialism. It's all expert run, you see, and it's been used as a big experiment. Every area is run by experts. Your child is followed from birth, and, and that child grows up to an adult, and you're followed right to your death by these specialists in mental health. Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> well, they put up with it, eh? And Canada is uh, uh, is interesting. This article here, because they're pushing for a U.S. dollar, a U.S. dollar global bond issue. Why is Canada doing that? You, th- you think we're not integrated, folks? <laughs> the Honourable Jim Flaherty, Minister of Finance, today announced that the government of Canada plans to issue a U.S. dollar-denominated global bond later this week, subject to market conditions. The bond will provide funds to supplement diversified Canada's foreign exchange reserves and to meet foreign currency requirements. Well, it's strange that because every country always accepted the, the Canada bond without any problem. So it says Canada holds its foreign exchange reserves and exchange fund accounts, EFA. The EFA assets provide foreign currency, liquidity and support for the promotion of orderly conditions for the Canadian dollar and foreign exchange markets. So then they're trying to lose you here through, through doublespeak. But anyway, the fact is, it doesn't, it still doesn't tell you why we're putting out a US dollar 
global bond issue. Again, we're integrated through the free trade and NAFTA and all of it. That's the whole thing. We have to go the same way as Europe, and they're falling apart <laughs> over their euro. And I mentioned this article before, too. The BBC was to issue global apology for documentaries that broke rules. It did more than break rules. See, you can't believe anything you see on TV, folks. Especially when they try and pretend that they're, they're above board and, and ultra above board. They're higher than anybody else. The BBC will today apologise for an estimated 74 million people around the world for a news-fixing scandal exposed by the Independent, which it broadcast documentaries made by a London TV company that was earning millions of pounds from public relations clients, which it featured in its programme. The whole series was public relations for cash. BBC World News viewers from Kuala Lumpur to Khartoum and Bangkok to Buenos Aires will watch that the remarkable broadcast available in 295 million homes, 1.7 million hotel rooms and 81 cruise ships, 46 airlines and on 35 mobile phone platforms at four different times, staged in order to reach audiences in different time zones. The BBC will apologise for breaking rules aimed at protecting our editorial integrity. These are the guys that ran the global warming and the Arctic was all melted. Uh, and all that stuff, you know, integrity. To... Anyway, the independent exposed last year in an investigation into the global television news industry how the BBC paid nominal fees of as little as £1 for programmes made by FBC Media UK, whose PR client included foreign governments and multinational comp- uh, combinations, it says, or, or companies. The company made eight pieces for the BBC about Malaysia while failing to declare it was paid £117 million by the Malaysian government for global strategic communications. The programmes included positive coverage of Malaysia's controversial palm oil industry. The BBC also used FBC to make a documentary about the spring uprising in Egypt without knowing the firm was paid to do the public relations work, propaganda that means, for the regime of former dictator Hosni Mubarak. The BBC Trust's Editorial Standards Committee carried out an investigation to BBC World News, which reported in November it uncovered 15 breaches of editorial guidelines. Eight out of the breaches were in respect of the FPC programmes made about Malaysia. The Trust also identified other breaches of rules and sponsorship and programmes shown by BBC World News, which is a commercial entity and carries advertising. So they made a lot of cash out of it, mind you, and, and gave you completely fake ideas of how companies are, you no know, smiling faces, all that kind of stuff. And, and that's how you get your news. Hmm? Not bad. And Orwellian, as it seems, eh? Al-Qaeda declares war on cancerous Syrian regime. And they had a meeting with the United Nations, who, who's all on board with Al-Qaeda now. See how you, you fight them one day and they're pals the next. You know, then you're they're enemies again. Oh, they're pals. Oh, and, and so you don't know who's who. So it says, um, it says that the head Ayman al-Zawahiri threw support behind rebels in Syria as the country's Arab neighbours cut adrift and, and vowed to support the uprising against President Bashar al-Assad. Arab League ministers meeting in Cairo call for a joint Arab and, and United Nations peacekeeping mission in the troubled country and vowed political and material support for the rebels. So we're all pals with them again, the guys who supposedly started all this off. But nonsense, because Al-Qaeda was made up <laughs> in the first place by the CIA. And Brzezinski was the head man. Uh, again, I keep putting up that, that old YouTube, but no, it's still up there, where Brzezinski is talking to uh, the rebels even in Afghanistan and he's, to get them to fight the Russians. He says, and yours is a holy war, a jihad, he says. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a few years later, he's, he's the first guy to come out and say, ah, that's those damned Al-Qaeda. 
Al-Qaeda really was just a, it was like a, a, a radio system where they could call in all these people who worked for the CIA. I mean, there were assets of the CIA and get instructions and so on. That's where the term really, really came from, not for a group. And, you know, there's so much articles here, so many. Did Yale University plan to create an intellectually superior race of children to repopulate Britain after World War II? It says, uh, uh, the university only offered children to Oxford, of Oxford and Cambridge University staff an, evac- an evacuation to the U.S. Uh, one evacuist raised questions about the experience, asking did they want to save the gene pool? And Yale's president, James, An- as I think it's Angel with two L's at the end, was a fanatic eugenicist in the worst meaning of that word. But that's nothing new for Yale because the history of Yale has been always uh, eugenics. Uh, they were in league with um, the Oneida community, if anybody who understands what that was. It was a breeding program under the guise of Christians. They weren't Christians at all, but it was a breeding program, and, and their god really was Charles Darwin, who did communicate with them and get their magazine every week, where they, they bred these, uh, these superior people and had all these rules. You couldn't live with it with a person. You were given a person for the night, and you couldn't have the same one in a week or a month, just like Brave New World. They were trying all that out back in the 1800s and early 1900s, and every top member, male member, of uh, the group there in Ida uh, also was sent to, to Yale, because Yale's always been a leader in eugenics. So Yale's university was accused of trying to create a super race of British children during World War II, University have offered to evacuate children to Oxford University staff in 1940, but it appears it could have been a sinister motive behind their seemingly kind offer. They are now concerned that leaders of the eugenics movement at Yale University may have extended the invitation because they plan to repopulate a devastated Britain with a race of intellectually superior children who couldn't tie their laces or farm a field. I should add that a little bit at the end, because I'm canny. <laughs> They'll have butlers to do that. Was Yale hoping to save the offspring, and tie their shoelaces, save the offspring of British academic elites, protecting those 125 children because it saw them as future leaders, uh, leadership class, especially the deserving of preservation, asked Jonathan Friedland in the Sunday Telegraph. As the threat of invasion loomed and the terror of Nazi bombs continued, Yale University sent a letter to both Oxford and Cambridge universities offering children of their fellows and dons evacuation refuge in the U.S., calling it sale, the, the Yale Faculty Committee for Receiving Oxford and Cambridge University Children. 125 Oxford children and 35 mothers took up the offer, boarding the SS Antonia from Liverpool to New Haven, Connecticut, on the 8th of July, 1940. They also had two uh, long-range bombers always on, on standby, going all the time, and that's where their engines go on, and, and teams of them, because, of course, you have to service them too, so they have teams, and when they shut down, the other ones would take over, so that the whole royal family could fly off. And we've tata to Britain. It says the children missed the parents but enjoyed a new world they have found themselves immersed in. They found the American classrooms less rigid than the English schooling and reveled in new experiences during their five year stay. So some of them talk about it, what happened and, and so on. But uh, they, they're having concerns that it was all to do with the gene pool, exactly what the Nazis were doing themselves because the SS officers were their special camps and special women picks where they could go and breed with these women, and the, the offspring were to be the, the ultimate Nazi. So, you know, nothing really changes, and it's nothing that, nothing's different today. You've still got the elite class and, and the peasantry down below. And I want to put a, a link up tonight, too, as I see Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, to show you, as I said, who's backing them. It's everybody who's, everybody, Ford Foundation, uh, Rockefeller, 
All the biggies are all parts of it. And they're running literally whole countries like Scotland's educational systems. And they supply the neuroscientists to them as well. So you can get tracked all through your lifetime to see how mentally fit you are. Eugenics again. It's always been eugenics. And, and another article too is to do with Australia and how they're just slashing jobs all over the place. 1,000 jobs, uh, uh, says, says, uh, they've just been slashed and raised, then the banks and so on, they're raising mortgages to protect their profit margins. Uh, all their, their stuff that normally, even soap they're making, things like that are disinfected, all gone off to China. This disaster. And then there's thousands of them in another article. Uh, small businesses just closing down because just like Britain, they went into action at the same time as Britain with this new uh, tax um, blitz on, on small companies that are having a hard time making ends meet. And it all is closing up, closing up. And finally, too, there's the mission of Roadmap 250, 2050, is to provide a practical, independent, and objective analysis of pathways to achieve a low-carbon economy in Europe in line with the energy security, environmental and economic goals of the European Union. So it's put out by the EU. The Roadmap 2050 project is an initiative of the European Climate Foundation and has been developed by a consortium of experts. Again, experts. Bertrand Russell said that we get taught to obey experts like they're gods. Funded by the ECF. And this little movie comes with it, a little propaganda piece. And they want a zero carbon by 2050. That means you can't breathe anymore, folks. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix, and we'll go to the callers now. There's Alex from New York hanging on the line there. Are you there, Alex? Hey. Yes. Um, I wanted to know what you thought about the whole theory that Paul McCartney's dead. The whole what? The theory that Paul McCartney is dead. Well, what was the theory? I never, I never heard about the theory. <laughs> oh, well, some people say that he died, and they replaced him with a doppelganger. Oh, they, they, they recycle that one with everybody. <laughs> they recycle that story with everyone that dies in that field. Yeah, they, they said the same with Bill Clinton, uh, that, that when he went to hospital, it was actually a doppelganger that came out when his heart was kaput, you know, and, and stuff like that. They, always, uh, they just, uh, it's, uh, even the cash, even the cash that McCartney had wasn't enough to to get that one done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a movie about it that claims <laughs> to have a tape that George Harrison made before he died. Uh-huh. And there's this whole theory that after he died, M, like some agent from MI5 came to the remaining Beatles and said that the Queen doesn't want all of these Beatles fans to kill themselves. So that's the excuse they apparently gave to the Beatles. And they used their MI5 plastic surgery people to make a copy of him. And, yeah, like she says, they, an attempt was made on his life, of George Harrison's life, because... He said he was going to reveal it, and he says that's why they killed 
John Lennon. No, no. Now, this, this stuff is, is, is wacko. Uh, they put this stuff out about so many different people, and I've heard it all before, only different people. that, that, that uh, it, it keeps the, the, the little people busy chasing their tails. Uh, you know, it really does. And, so, and I tell you another thing, too, if you actually went to the, to the extreme and said, if it was true, so what? what? How would it change the world? You know, it wouldn't do anything. No, it wouldn't. The, the, real, the, real agenda, the real items we should be thinking about are the articles like I'm reading tonight, because these affect us. These affect us all. Mm-hmm. Not kidding you. So you don't think they were used for, like, mind control purposes and stuff like that? All music's used for mind control. It's just that folk, folk don't even understand what, what they're hearing. They like the music, but they don't know what the words mean. Hey, Jude, and so on. They have no idea what it means, except the makers do. And uh, we know that the Beatles were involved with Yo Adorno, who owned all their songs until Adorno died. That is fact. And then it went up for auction, and, and it was um, Michael Jackson who bought it. He, so until he died, he, did, he had the rights to them, to all the Beatles' songs. And um, we know that Adorno also was uh, big with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. He was, a, he was a real, you know, really into music and new stuff. But he was also a, fa- uh, um, he belonged to, to uh, some of the big Marxist groups in the world. He wanted a, a global system and so on. So they were managed. Everybody, you understand, whatever you see on television, including the groups, are all well managed by people you never, you never hear of. Not the manager they'll tell you about, the roadie, but people way above them who make them stars. You're, you're made a star. It's not because you've got a particular talent. Yeah, I hear Phil Adorno was their handler. Well, there's more than just him. There's a whole bunch of them to make them a star. A lot of cash goes into making you a star and, and good promotion. And, and that's what does it. You can pick anybody off the street and make them a star, technically. The real stars are playing in clubs and keeping audiences happy. Uh, and they can do it for you know, five hours straight. That's a star. But thanks for calling from Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada. It's good night, me, your God or your God school with you.